بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسوله الكريم نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد so continuing with our study of the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawi last session we looked at two hadith two hadith the first was la darar wa la dirar there is no darar and there is no dirar both of which mean harm. However, there is a difference between the two. There is a difference between the two when we look at the specifics. Both of them mean, ha mean harm. However, darar is one form of harm. Dirar is another form of harm. So what's the difference between the two, Muhammad? Very good. So darar, that is the harm that is done intentionally whereas there are that is the harm that is done unintentionally who can give no darar darar is the harm that is done unintentionally oh, sorry did i say something else no? darar is the harm that is done unintentionally and there are is the harm that is done intentionally Again, darar is the harm that is done unintentionally and darar is the harm that is done intentionally. Who can give an example of harm that is done unintentionally? A harm that is done unintentionally. A harm that is done un uh, unintentionally. This is an example that I was trying to recall last week but I couldn't bring it to mind. An example that I believe Sheikh Uthaymin, he mentioned. A person has a window to his house. Now when you open that window, it invades the privacy of somebody else. Right? Like you have in many of the Muslim countries, the hot countries, where you have a window and uh, you open it and you can see the courtyard of the of your neighbor, for example, right? Or you can see certain part of his house. What is it called? Haush. In the middle, eh? In the middle. I remember in Yemen, they used to have a haush. They used to call it haush, where it, where, where, uh, whereby the courtyard is in the middle of the house, right? It's inside the vicinity of the house. Um, so now, if you open your window, you can see into the house. You can see into the courtyard, which is inside the building of the house. That is, some, that is a harm now because you're invading the privacy of somebody else. You're invading the privacy of your neighbors. So in that situation, Sheikh Uthaymin, he said that you can't use that window. You'd have to place a window somewhere else, have that window blocked. Because when you open that window, you're looking into the, into the private area of your neighbor. So that's a harm, that's a darar, that's a harm that is done unintentionally who can give an example of there are harm that is done intentionally biqasdin intentionally sheikh faisal not that sheikh faisal sheikh faisal yugandi not the other one talking about the marriage Which example? 
a person might do that with a good intention, right? He may think it's better for this group of children for me too. I'll take care of the inheritance. I'll withhold it. They can't spend it until later on. But they may be harmed by that. They may need it. The father may have had debts on his head that they need to clear. So that's, you know, with um, a good intent. Harming somebody intentionally, meaning you intend to harm them. You want them to feel harm, sense harm, experience harm. There are. Uh, you start your car and it makes a loud noise. You don't need to start the car and make the loud noise, but you just do it to harm, for example, your neighbor. That's now defined as darar or dirar. Dirar, whereby you intend to harm the neighbor. You, there's no point in you doing so. There's no point in you starting the motor. and There's no benefit that you're getting behind it, but the intent behind it is just to harm your neighbor. So therefore, both forms are not allowed. Darar or dirar. Darar, the harm that is caused unintentionally, or dirar, the harm that is caused intentionally. However, the one that, the one at whose hands darar occurs, harm occurs, unintentional harm, he's not penalized for it. He's not punished for it. However, the one at whose hands dirar occurs, it's established that he intended to harm somebody by way of this action, then he is penalized. He is punished by those that are in authority. That was one hadith. The second hadith that we looked at, the, the hadith al-bayyinah ala al-mudda'i. The proof is upon the claimant. The evidence is upon the one that is making the claim. Somebody makes a claim against somebody. He says that so-and-so he took my wallet. The one that is making the claim has to produce the evidence. The one against whom the claim has been made, what does he have to do? What does she have to do? Make an oath. Make, a, make an oath. Why? Because people are judged upon the zahir. They are judged based upon that which is apparent. So if it is the case that I have a wallet in my pocket, Somebody comes along and says, that's my wallet. That which is dahir is that it belongs to me because it's in my pocket. So he has to produce the evidence. Evidences can be shuhud, witnesses. Evidences can be qara'in, certain factors. He may have the receipt and so on and so forth. So therefore, and this is an, a, uh, a principle upon which the judicial law of Islam is based upon. The court system in the Islamic courts, it's based upon this. Those who, came, those who come making a complaint, making a, uh, a claim against somebody, they have to produce the evidence. The one against whom the claim has been made, all he has to do is take an oath. Question, why? Why is it the case? That the one who's making the claim has to bring shuhud, witnesses, has to have qara'in, factors. And why does he have to bring evidence? And the one against whom he's making the claim, 
all he has to do is take an oath. Why? Very good. Because the one who's making an oath, his evidence is strong anyhow. His evidence is the fact that the wallet is in my possession. His evidence is the fact that uh, 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 the money, it's in my possession. He, he, he already possesses it. That there is a strong enough evidence. And therefore, he doesn't require a stronger, a strong piece of evidence now. All he requires is the oath. Whereas the one that is making the claim, his evidence is weak. It's just a claim. If it's just a claim that he's making, it's weak. He therefore needs something that is going to make it stronger, something that is going to counterbalance it. His evidence so far is weak. It's nothing other than a claim. And that is why he, he requires evidence, strong evidence, via which his claim can be justified. Tamam. So that was one part of Sheikh Abdul Muhsin's uh, explanation. Part number three, which we uh, touched upon last week, was that just like people need to produce evidence concerning matters of the dunya, the dunya that they claim, then likewise, the one who claims matters related to the afterlife, matters related to the akhirah, he likewise needs to produce evidence. The one who claims to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but then you see him contradicting that statement, then we say to him, produce your evidence. And that is based upon the statement of Allah, which is the ayah. Which is the ayah. Uh, uh, Ahmed. Kif? Yeah, what's the ayah? Anybody else? Qul. Qul. Qul in kuntum tuhibbun Allah. Say Muhammad to the people. If you truly love Allah, fattabi'uni, then follow me. Follow me. Yani who? Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Fattabi'uni, yuhibibkum Allah. Then Allah will love you. So the point is, is that the one who claims to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, let him check whether he has the evidence or not. This ayah is the ayah of, 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 of mihna, the ayah of testing, the ayah of examining. And as the Salaf, they said, لَيْسَ شَأَنْ أَن إِنَّمَا شَأَنْ أَن The thing that carries weight, the thing that has significance, isn't that you love, meaning that you love Allah, but rather the thing that carries weight, the thing that carries significance, is that Allah loves you. This ayah, which says that if you love Allah, then follow the Prophet والسلام, a person should by default be following the Prophet والسلام, anyhow. Why? Because me loving Allah, me doing what Allah loves, I should be doing that anyhow. But the thing that carries the greatest significance, the thing that is amazing, is if Allah loves me. But as for me loving Allah, that is, I should be doing that anyhow. Because a person, when he brings to mind 
this was a point that was meant to be mentioned in the previous hadith the hadith about when the man asked the prophet direct me to an action that if i do it allah will love me you loving allah that goes without saying why because when you reflect upon the reality of who allah is and how allah is towards you that will automatically bring about love in your heart for him as imam ibn qayyim he said allah mentioned you before you mentioned him so you say allahu akbar you say bismillah you make dhikr of allah you mention allah you remember allah you started to remember Allah when your parents, they said to you, La ilaha illallah, when your parents, they used to pray and you used to watch them. You remembered Allah, you mentioned Allah when you would think about Him. However, before all of that, before you even came into existence, before you were even born, Allah mentioned you by name. Your name is written down, is it not? Your, ra your name, your existence was written down before you even came into existence. Allah, He therefore mentioned you before you were even born. That is azim, if you think about it. Obviously, if you don't think about it, if you don't give it any contemplation, then it's not going to hold much significance. But when you think about it, King so-and-so of such and such a country mentioned me by name. When you think about it, that there is a king of a certain land and he mentioned me by name. He said, Ali from England, and so on and so forth. You become filled with uh, honor and you become overwhelmed. You become overwhelmed. You feel privileged. The king of such and such a country mentioned me. The leader of such and such a country mentioned me. How about when Allah, who is the King, mentioned you, mentioned you by name, mentioned his name, Ali, Ahmed, Khalid, so and so, he mentioned them by name, before you even thought about Allah, before you even mentioned Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is how generous and kareem Allah is to you. Not just that, but even when Allah jalla wa ala, addresses you look at how he subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses you hmm? when my who asks me you concerning me allah says about you the one that becomes ghafil about allah the one that becomes neglectful neglectful about allah the one that sins against Allah, sinning against Allah, that is ungratefulness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yet, even though that is your state, Allah says about you, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ When my slaves ask you about me, then tell them I am close to them. I answer the supplication of the, of the supplicant when he supplicates to me. Allah he addresses you as an abd, as a slave. And what an honor it is for a person 
to be an abd of Allah, to be a slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this, when a person reflects upon it, when he reflects upon it, he has to love Allah. His heart can't help but love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah honored you by mentioning you by name. Allah honored you by calling you a slave of His. When a person thinks about that, he becomes filled with love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَلَيْسَ الشَّأْنِ أَن تُحِبُّ بَلِ الشَّأْنِ أَن تُحَبُّ The thing that bears weight, the thing that carries significance, is not that you love Allah, you have to do that. That goes without saying. But then Allah loves you. That is the thing that is azim. That is the thing that is, that is great and mighty. And therefore, if a person wants to be loved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then bayyina ala al-mudda'i. The proof is upon the one that is claiming it. He has to follow the he has to follow the messenger alayhi salatu wasalam. He has to follow the Prophet alayhi salatu wasalam in his aqaid, in his muamalat. He has to follow the Prophet in his beliefs, in his dealings, in his in his ibadat, in his acts of worship. If he does so, if he follows the messenger alayhi salatu wasalam, then he will earn the great and mighty, generous love of Allah subhanahu wa taala. Part number four of Sheikh Abdul Muhsin's explanation is a summary of the benefits. And there are four points. One, point number one. Ishtimal al-shari'ah ala hifdhi amwali al-nas wa dima'ihim. Point number one. This hadith, the benefits that it highlights is that the shari'ah, it consists of those things that will protect the wealth and the blood of people. You can't just make a claim against somebody and expect to be granted your claim. Proof and evidence needs to be established. So therefore, as a result of that, the wealth and the blood of people is safeguarded. Number two. Bayan al-Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam at-turqa allati yufsalu fiha bayn al-mutakhasimayn or mutakhasimayn. Point number two, in it the Prophet ﷺ has highlighted the avenues, the methods and avenues that are adopted in order to bring about judgment between disputing parties. In this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ has highlighted the methods, the procedures that are to be adopted in order to bring about uh, uh, judgment between disputing parties. Number three. إِذَا لَمْ يُقَرَّ الْمُدَّعَى عَلَيْهِ فَإِنَّ عَلَى الْمُدَّعِ إِقَامَةُ الْبَيِّنَةِ عَلَى دَعْوَاهِ So point number three is that what we learn from this hadith, that if the one against whom the claim is being made does not admit to it does not acknowledge it does not admit the claim acknowledge the claim then upon the claimant is to produce evidence for his claim if the one against whom the claim is being made does not say yes you know what I admit the wallet does belong to the claimant if he does not do that then upon the claimant is to produce Evidence establishing his claim. Number four. 
إذا لم تقم البينة حلف المدعى عليه وبرئت ساحته وإن لم يحلف قضي عليه بالنكول If it's the case that the bayina, the, the proof, the evidence has not been established, has not been presented, has not been given. If the evidence hasn't been given, then the one against whom the claim has been made is made to take an oath. The one against whom the claim has been made is made to take an oath. If he, makes the, if he takes an oath, then he's innocent now. If he takes the oath, he's innocent. Somebody makes a claim, no evidence is produced. The one against whom the claim is made takes an oath as a result of him taking the oath. He is now innocent. However, if it's the case that he declines from making an oath, declines from taking an oath, then he is considered as someone who hasn't taken testimony. He is considered as someone who hasn't taken testimony. Is it the case though that in every single case, every single situation, the mudda'a alayhi, the one against whom the claim has been made, has to take an oath? In every single situation, not in every single situation, meaning in not in every single situation does the judge actually have to look at the case itself. It could be the case that the mudda'a alayhi, the one against whom the accusation has been made, doesn't even need to take an oath. Why? Because the judge doesn't even look at the case. Case comes, the judge looks at it, case dismissed. Why? Several factors, many Many factors. It could be the case that the uh, who can who can give us some examples? Yeah, Abdul um, Hakim. Claim goes against the Sharia, for example. For example. Yeah, second. What about alcohol? It's haram, ya What about alcohol? Who's going to elaborate? Yeah, you're right. That w that example was mentioned. Yes, that's the one. Someone wants to claim. That's the one that you obviously, Sheikh Ahmed, was referring to. And if somebody wants to claim inheritance, he says that, listen, your father said he'll give me a bottle of alcohol. He'll give me a bottle of wine. So now, when the father passes away, the claimant comes to court and he says, the... Uh, Inheritors, they're not giving me the bottle of wine that the uh, the father promised. The judge, he can just dismiss the case there and then. Why? Because the thing that is being claimed is haram. What else? Sheikh Faisal, Al-Ugandi. Yeah, it doesn't, co doesn't coincide with intellect not a reasonable claim that you're making it's not a logical claim that you're making it's a claim that contradicts basic reason such as so for example a 35 year old young man
claims that he claims that this 45 year old man is my son you're 35 year old you come to court and you say that this 45 year old person here he is my son you're making a claim and you say he is my son the judge is not going to say to you take an oath he's not going to do that why because the claim it goes against aql it goes against reason it goes against sound common logic and therefore the case isn't even looked at okay and there are several other factors that are uh, 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 which result in perhaps the judge not even looking at the case aql al-his al-shara' and so on and so forth tamam tamam ikhwan next we move on to the next hadith the hadith of today which is the hadith na'am the next hadith of Abi Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu ta'ala an anybody want to read the hadith Sheikh Muhammad This hadith here, Man ra'a minkum munkaran Whoever sees munkar from amongst you, whoever sees evil from amongst you, then let him change it with his hand. And if he's unable, then with his tongue. And if he's unable, then with his heart. And that is the weakest of iman. That is the weakest of iman. This narration has been recorded by Imam Muslim. Shaykh Abdul Muhsin al-Abbad's explanation to this hadith it's of two parts, two small parts the first part is a collection of points of, uh, of benefit concerning this hadith and part number two is a summary of the benefits inshallah we'll, ter- we'll try and supplement this we'll try and supplement Shaykh Abdul Muhsin's explanation with, uh, with some other points of benefit from Shaykh Uthaymin and others so the first part of Sheikh Abdul Muhsin's explanation, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll itemize them. We'll mention them one by one. The first part is the explanation, which is just over a paragraph ro- long. So we'll just itemize them so it's easy for the brothers. So the first point to note is that the statement of the Messenger, alayhi salatu wasalam, well, before that, and one point that Shaykh Uthameen and others have mentioned, is that the Messenger, alayhi salatu wasalam, he said, فَلْيُغَيِّرْهُ Then, let him change it with his hand. Let him change it with his hand. We translate it as, let him change it. That, that particle that we translate as, let him change it, is a lamb. That lamb is known as lamul amr, the lamb of command. And that indicates that the messenger is commanding the ummah. He is commanding the ummah that if you are in a situation where there is munkar, then you are commanded by him, alayhi salatu wasalam, to change that munkar. The ummah have been commanded 
essentially to enjoin good and forbid evil. That's one important point to note. Commanding good, joining, uh, commanding good, forbidding evil, is a command from the Messenger of Allah upon the Ummah. Are there details to it? Are there conditions to it? Are there yes, there are specifics to it, which inshallah ta'ala we'll look at. But that is a general understanding that we should have. Uh, this hadith is an addressment to the Ummah that it is in general mandatory upon us to enjoin good and forbid evil. So that was the one point that we wanted to mention which is a point that uh, Sheikh Abdul Razak al-Badr hafizahullah ta'ala mentioned. And point number two that Sheikh Abdul Muhsin he mentions is concerning the statement of Allah, uh, of Allah's Messenger alayhi salatu salam man ra'a minkum munkaran falyughayyirhu biyadihi whoever from amongst you sees a munkar, sees an evil then let him change it with his hand. Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Abad he says, وَهَذَا يَكُونُ مِنَ السُّلْطَانِ وَنَوَابِهِ فِي الْوِلَايَاتِ الْعَامَّةِ وَيَكُونُ أَيْضًا مِنْ صَاحِبِ الْبَيْتِ فِي أَهْلِ بَيْتِهِ فِي الْوِلَايَاتِ الْخَاصَّةِ So as far as changing an evil with your hand is concerned, then as far as general responsibilities are concerned, as far as general matters are concerned, general responsibilities, and that is in relation to the, those that are in authority, the leader and those that are under his command, the ministers, his deputies, his representatives. As far as changing evil is concerned, with your hand physically changing it, you see a munkar there, you go and smash that thing. You see a, a, a wrong occurring there, you go physically change it with your hand. That is something that the leader of the country and his representatives can do, his deputies can do, those that he's placed as agents for himself, the police, the army, and so on and so forth. So, for example, if it is the case that there is a building that is selling haram things, selling for example khamar wine you cannot go and try to close down that shop physically with your hand you go into the shop you start smashing the bottles of wine you go into the shop you start causing havoc in the shop you put the locks and the uh, padlocks on the door of the shop and you put shutters on the sh you can't do that that is something that is specific for the one that is the governor of that land or those type of responsibilities that are khasa, those type of responsibilities and domains and realms that are specific, like the man of the house, the one that's in charge of the house. So for example, in their house, the kids there are playing music, for example, you have authority in that house, a specific authority, not an absolute authority over the whole land, a specific authority that is restricted to your household so now in that situation if there is for example the children they're playing music in the house you can go physically with your own hand turn that music off you can take that instrument or that device that is being used to play the music you're a manager at work you're, you're the um, uh, the owner of a business and your employees 
they're doing haram on your premises yes it's your premises you can forbid them physically with your own hand from doing so so for example they are uh, uh, you know smoking some drugs for example on your premises you are the boss it's your business you are the owner they're doing it on your premises you can remove them from your property as because of them engaging in that particular in that particular haram why because it is your particular premises and you have a specific wilaya specific authority in that regard Meaning this, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, in this, in, in the, that would go back to la. Um, munkar can't be uh, in car of munkar can't be made with another munkar, with another greater evil, with another harm, right? And there's a principle in the Sharia. وَإِنْ تَزَاهَمَ عَدَدَ الْمَفَاسِدِ يُقَدَّمَ الْأَدْنَى مِنَ الْمَفَاسِدِ if it's the case that there are two potential evils, two potential harms that are about to occur, or that could potentially occur, then you give precedence to the lesser of the two evils. So now in that situation, in this country, I'm not too sure as to what the laws are, but from what I understand, they have six months, don't they? They have six months. Uh, huh? No. No, uh, no, not by the Sharia, but from the bab of from the bab of that more harm will be caused to you, or more harm may be caused to your family. Um, we're going to touch upon this later on. More harm is going to be caused to you or others as a result of that. Others that are connected to you. Then in that situation, you know you can't uh, physically kick them out. You can't physically kick them out, or you can't physically, you know, uh, walk in there. Imagine it, they're taking drugs and they're high and you go inside of there and you try to, and they have some weapons with them. So point being is that if it was a Muslim country and no harm is going to be... Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Are you, cons yeah, your question is, are you considered instrumental? in the haram that they're doing because of the fact that they are renting your property Allah alam, Allah alam, maybe ask Abu Mu'adha I don't know but the point being in terms of you know what I initially understood it to mean if it's the case that it's going to cause greater harm then 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 you're not obligated to enjoin or forbid them from that particular evil Tamam. so point being so far this point of Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abad is that you change an evil physically with your hand if it is the case that you are the governor as far as evil that is generally occurring within the land is concerned. Specific, specific, uh, specific, or, uh, specific authority that specific people have, then they can physically with their hand change that evil in those specific circumstances. Like for example, the man of the house. Like for example, the one that is the owner of the house, uh, in his house. Tamam, the next point that Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abad he mentions is, is it the case 
that the Messenger when he said, Man ra'a minkum, whoever sees an evil from amongst you, then let him change it with his hand, and if not, then with his tongue, and so on and so forth. Is it the case that this means that it's only in relation to when you visually see an evil occurring? When the Prophet ﷺ said, whoever amongst you sees an evil occurring, then let him change it with his hand. Ah, does that now mean that if you can't physically see it, you can't visually see it, that you don't have to change it, you don't have to forbid it? Is that what it means? Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abad and the other scholars, Shaykh Uthaymin, they have said no. That is not what it implies. Rather, it implies seeing it physically, yes. And likewise, knowledge. You've come to know of it. So, for example, you were in the other room and you heard something which indicated that munkar is occurring, that evil is occurring. Upon you is to forbid it based upon your ability, whether it's physically with your hand, with your tongue, or with your heart. Likewise, if it's the case that you didn't, you didn't visually see it, and you didn't hear it, but the information was conveyed to you via trustworthy reports, via trustworthy sources, the information is being conveyed to you that evil is occurring there. That is something now that is inclusive within the statement of the Prophet ﷺ, when he said, Man ra'a minkum, whoever amongst you sees a munkar. Seeing the munkar meaning you saw it or you heard it or you essentially came to came to know it. Okay, so that is the what number? Three, yeah? Three. First point that we mentioned was the benefit of Shaykh Abdul Razak al Badr. Uh, second point, Shaykh Abdul Muhsin. Third point, Shaykh Abdul Muhsin. Sah? Tamam. Next point that Shaykh Abdul Muhsin mentions. The next point that Sheikh Abdul Muhsin mentions is about hating it in your heart. What does that mean? Hating something in your heart. Hating that thing in your heart. Meaning, Sheikh Abdul Muhsin, he says, وَتَغْيِيرُ الْمُنْكَرِ بِالْقَلْبِ يَكُونُ بِكَرَاهَةِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَحُسُولِ الْأَثَرْ عَلَى الْقَلْبِ بِسَبَبِ ذَلِكَ So you hating something, hating an evil, is you hating it in your heart and it's having an, an impact upon your heart. That hatred that you have for that munkar that is happening in front of you, that hatred that you have for the munkar that you're hearing about, that hatred that... That hatred of that munkar that you have come to know about, that hatred that you have for, the mun for that munkar is such that it has an impact upon your heart. It has a, an effect upon your heart. And therefore, another point is that having a hatred for munkar is not necessarily the grimacing of the face. It's not necessarily, not necessarily a grimacing of the face, huh? and you, you know, and crossing your eyebrows like this, and you, your face becoming red. These may be f certain effects, but the thing that carries weight 
is that it has an impact upon your heart. You hate it in your heart, that it didn't exist. You have a desire in your heart, that that munkar didn't exist. So for example, someone is there in front of you doing something that is haram. He is drinking khamar, for example. So he's drinking khamar, you have hatred in your heart for the fact that he's drinking khamar and you wish that that evil of drinking khamar did not exist. It wasn't something that was happening. It has an impact upon your heart. And therefore connected to that is a statement of Shaykh Uthaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, who said that if we were to then suppose um, that is it the case that when a person sees a munkar occurring in and around him, yet he still sits amongst the people that are committing the munkar, whatever that munkar may be, and he says, I'm hating it in my heart and I'm not going to get up and leave from this gathering where the munkar is occurring is that correct is that correct that i'm sitting amongst the people they are engaged in the munkar however i'm going to hate it in my heart that's enough because the prophet said whoever is unable to forbid it with his tongue then let him hate it with his heart so therefore i'm going to hate it with my heart but i'm not going to leave the gathering is that correct Shaykh Uthaymin said, no. Why? Because if you did really hate it, you would have got up and left. Shaykh Abdul Muhsin, did he not say that it has an impact upon your heart? It has an effect upon your heart. Someone is committing the haram in front of you, and therefore you end up hating it, desiring it not to happen in front of you, desiring, it for, desiring for it not to occur, and therefore it has an impact on your heart. The hatred of that thing has an impact upon your heart. If it does have an impact upon your heart, then you'd get up and you'd leave. You wouldn't stay there. So Shaykh Uthaymin said, it's not correct for a person to say that I hated that munkar, but I still st stuck to that gathering. I still stayed within that gathering. No, if you really hated it, you would have got up and left. Unless you did not have the ability to get up and leave. Unless you were compelled to stay in that position. Stay in that place. Tamam. So that is item number four. Item number four from what Sheikh Abdul Muhsin he mentioned. Item number five. There's a very important point that Sheikh Abdul Muhsin highlights. And that is that this command of enjoining good and forbidding evil with our hands, with our tongue, with our, with our heart, does not contradict the statement of Allah when He said, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, alaykum anfusakum, la yudurrukum man dalla idha tadaytum, O you who believe, upon you is your own selves. You're commissioned and burdened with your own selves. You will not be harmed by those who go astray if you are guided. Again, oh you, who, oh you who believe, 
upon you is yourselves. You're responsible for yourselves. You will not be harmed by those who become misguided if you are guided. Some people say, look, Allah says, I won't be harmed by those who are misguided. I'm only responsible for myself. Therefore, I don't have to actually go and enjoin good and forbid evil. This is not correct. Why? Because the meaning of this ayah is, Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Hafizahullah, he says, he says, فَإِنَّ الْمَعْنَى إِذَا قُمْتُمْ بِمَا هُوَ مَطْلُوبٌ مِنْكُمْ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَالنَّهِ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ فَقَدْ أَدَّيْتُمْ مَا عَلَيْكُمْ وَلَا يَضُرُّكُمْ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ ضَلَالُوا مَنْ ضَلَّ إِذَا اهْتَدَيْتُمْ The meaning of this is that if you, if you, those of you who believe, if you establish what has been demanded from you of enjoining the good and forbidding the evil, if you do that, if you enjoin the good and you forbid the evil, then you have done what was what you are what you are responsible for if you do if you enjoin the good and you forbid the evil then you've done what you are responsible for and then you won't be harmed after that by whoever becomes misguided as long as you have become guided are they so there is no there is no contradiction some of the people they say yeah, I'm not going to go and tell so-and-so that what he's doing is haram. I'm going to keep myself to myself. Why? Because the Prophet, he said, مِنْ حُسْنِ إِسْلَامِ الْمَرْئِ تَرْكُهُ مَا لَا يَعْنِيهِ From the perfection of a person's Islam is that he leaves what does not concern him. Is he abandons what doesn't concern him. Yeah, if someone else is drinking alcohol in front of me, doesn't concern me. If someone is speaking bad of the ulama and backbiting and slandering the ulama in front of me uh, doesn't concern me no that means you have not understood the hadith why because enjoining the good and forbidding the, the evil it concerns you prophet muhammad has told you already that you have to if you see an evil occurring change it with your hand he's commanded you if he's commanded you with something then that means that that thing concerns you. It is your business. And therefore, the meaning of the hadith and the meaning of this ayah is that if you enjoin good and you forbid the evil and people still become misguided, people still don't listen to you, then them not listening to you is not going to harm you as long as you're still guided. You've come. Ali, Sheikh Abdul Muslim doesn't mention it. Anybody... Uh, you got the eye number. Surah Al-Ma'idah, what note ayah? 105. Surah Al-Ma'idah, ayah 105. So there are more benefits that uh, is appropriate to mention. However, we'll leave that insha'Allah ta'ala for next week. There are other benefits, supplementary benefits. Uh, from Sheikh Uthaymeen and Ibn Rajab and Sheikh Abdul Razak al-Badr Hafizah Allah Ta'ala However, inshaAllah Ta'ala It's been 50 minutes now So we'll conclu conclude at this point And then continue next week Wallahu Ta'ala A'lam wa sallillahu ma'ala nabina Muhammad Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen